Acts chapter 16, we'll be looking at two verses, verse 25 and 26. Let's read. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were loosed. Let's pray. Jesus, we come before you this morning, and Lord, more than anything right now, what we want is you. We want more of you. Lord, we want more uh, a knowledge of you. We want our heart to grow in its capacity for you. We want to love you more, Jesus. And so we just lay it out there and we say, Lord, come in this place. By your Holy Spirit, teach us your word so that we may love you better and that we may love you more. God, we adore you for all that you've done and all that you're going to do. Lord, I pray that you'd make us a people of praise in any circumstance and situation, by your Holy Spirit, make this so real to our hearts, Jesus. Lord, it's not by might nor by power, but by your Spirit. So be here this morning. Be glorified here, Lord, as your your word is read and taught. We love you more than we can say, but uh, we just love you. In Jesus' name, amen. As I have been uh, studying for the Old Testament survey class that goes on on Sunday nights, uh, I kind of run into uh, something that uh, is kind of interesting. When I take a book and study it, uh, the book we'll be going through that week, it becomes my favorite book. And uh, I'm sure all of you uh, have had this as you are reading through the Bible in a year and you think, oh, it can't get better than this. And then surely it's the next book. You're like, this is where the gold is. And, uh, and that's how it is. Uh, and I was studying for Psalms uh, last week. And uh, man, something in that book, like never before, captured my heart. It's specifically in regards to its theme of praise. Its theme of praise. And you may go, come on, Kaylor, that. We know the Psalms are about praise. That's what it's about. Are you teaching the ABCs in there too? Uh, But it's an incredible book. And with that theme uh, comes uh, something that the Lord has been working into my life and impressing upon my heart that I hope we can speak about this morning. The book of Psalms is divided into five sections. Each each five sections, each different section corresponding with uh, one of the first five books of the uh, uh, Pentateuch. And so, but at the end of each section, you have a doxology of praise. And in the last six chapters of the book, it's just six chapters of praise. And the thing that strikes me about the book of Psalm is that you read it, is that the the praise wasn't meant just when the people would come to the temple. Surely it was for that. They had songs set aside where they would worship the Lord at the temple. But it was more than that. The book of Psalms, as you read it, you see that, man, if you wake up in the middle of the night, you should praise. If you, you know, wake up in the morning, you should praise. As you walk to the temple, praise. If you're in the temple, praise. As you eat, praise. Whatever you do, praise. Praise without ceasing. Everything's about praise. And it's so interesting because God wanted to establish and had established his people as a people that were separate, a people that were different. And one of the characteristics that he wanted for his people was that they would be a people of praise, that they would be a people of worship that they would celebrate him in front of all the other nations, that the nations would look around and say, who is this God you celebrate in such a way, in all times, in all seasons, in all places, in all walks of life? 
And so it is that's been so impressed upon my heart that it's praise and worship isn't to be a Sunday thing, but it's to be a moment-by-moment thing for our Christian walks and our Christian lives. Britt has been talking about victory in the book of Joshua, and it's been amazing. Victory, victorious Christian living. And we see that it wasn't meant to be, you know, a, a, victory, a victory to be had, and then, and, then, and then they were done, but they were to keep pressing on. They were to keep possessing and taking and victory upon victory. And so is our walk with Christ, the walk that Christ longs for us to have. And I see in Psalms that instance where we are to walk in that victory moment by moment, and that one of the ways of victory is the victory of praise. The victory of praise. And there's a lot of texts in the Bible that deal with that theme. In fact, one of the, one of the texts that uh, is spoken behind this pulpit uh, often is Second Chronicles chapter 20. And if you guys know the story, uh, King Jehoshaphat is facing off against uh, Moab and Ammon. And here they've come against him. And they go to the Lord and they pray. And, and, and the Lord gives them a plan. And so what they, do, what they do is they, instead of choosing soldiers and warriors and guys with swords and shields who are good with bows and arrows, they choose stringed instruments. They choose tenors. They choose uh, altos. They choose a worship team. And the worship team goes out before the people and they begin to praise God and the enemy falls upon itself and God brings about a great victory in Israel that day. Absolutely amazing. But my heart's drawn to the book of Acts in this chapter as we look at this victory of praise that can be had. This moment-by-moment life of praise that Christ longs for us to have. Now, as you see in verse 25 and, and 26, but at midnight Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. The prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the, pris- uh, of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's chains were loosed. Now, a lot of us know this story, and this story kind of goes down in the, in the realm of the heroic. This is a unique story that, you know, is, is, uh, is, is kind of like one of those great stories in the Bible that are neat to read to our kids, but, but are hard to aspire to. But this story is here for us today, and it's here uh, uh, to be applied to our lives, because the things that happened in the life of Paul and Silas and what led them to sing in prison are the same things that can lead us to sing in our circumstances and uh, our prisons of circumstances that often come our way. What, was, what got them into this place? What was it that happened to them that led them to the point where they were beaten with rods and that they were chained in a prison in this city? So uh, at the end of chapter 15 and the beginning of 16, uh, we see a little background to this story. Now, Paul and Barnabas were about to begin their second missionary journey, but there was a contention that happened between the two of them over John Mark. And John Mark, on the first missionary journey, had abandoned them. He had gotten scared and he had gone home. It got too gnarly for him. And Barnabas, who's the son of encouragement, said, you know, we need to take him. We need to, you know, uh, give him a second chance. But Paul uh, didn't like weakness in people. And so he said, no, we're not going to take him in it. And it caused uh, a split between them. But the Lord got two missionaries out of it. And so uh, Barnabas took John Mark and went his way. And then Paul took Silas. Now, Paul and Silas begin to minister to the churches they had planted on their first missionary trip. They're going and they're encouraging and checking in on everybody. Everything's doing okay. The health of the church is the body healthy. Uh, and then 
Uh, at one point, they hear about a, a, a young man named Timothy, and they ask him to be a part. And so Timothy joins their group, and uh, they go about uh, to preach the word in Asia, and they're about to go into this land unconquered. And you know Paul, and, and the, just the challenge of it, and just longing to be there. But something interesting happens. It says that the Holy Spirit forbid them. They were forbidden to go by the Holy Spirit. And so they try to head to Bith- uh, 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 Bith- Bithynia, but the Holy Spirit forgive, forbids them again. And so here they are, and they want to go, and they want to preach the word, but the Lord's saying, no, don't go here, no, don't go here. And so then Paul has a vision uh, one night of a man from Macedonia who stood pleading with him to come to Macedonia. And so after he gets up, he gets up, and it says immediately uh, they left for Macedonia. In verse 10, you notice it says, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. And so constantly asking the Lord where they're to go, and the Lord leads them. He gives them a vision of this man pleading with him. Immediately they go, saying, this is where God's calling us to go. In God's sovereign grace, God led Paul west into Europe and not east into Asia. And Paul would have a tremendous impact as the Lord carried him throughout Europe. So uh, they make their way to Philippi, which if you notice in verse 12 of chapter 16, it says, is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia. And so Paul, he didn't want to go to the outskirts or the, you know, uh, uh, the kind of, the kind of, you know, uh, farmlands and stuff. He wanted to be in the hub of it. He wanted to take the city first and foremost. So he goes to that foremost city of Macedonia. Now, Philippi, uh, where they end up, it was kind of a Rome away from Rome. And I don't mean to be cheesy uh, by saying that, but it was a colony that had been set up. Now, Brutus and uh, uh, Antony and Octavian had fought there. And so uh, Antony and uh, uh, Octavian uh, had put down Brutus at that point. And so Octavian established a colony. And it was part of the strategy of Rome. It's on the fringes. It's on the outskirts. And so what they would do is they would take uh, people called magistrates, from within Rome, people who knew how to rule, people who loved Roman law, and that they would send them to this place, this colony, uh, and they would reproduce a miniature Rome in that city. And, uh, and so they would get veterans, people who were retired for the, from the army, and they would send them to these places, and they would give them incentives. If they went to one of these colonies, they wouldn't have to pay taxes, which wasn't, which wasn't bad. But it was truly a Rome within a Rome. And uh, the strategy of it was to have loyal Roman people in these strategic locations on the fringes of the empire. And so as, the, as Paul and Silas and Timothy and these guys come in, uh, no one took note of them. No one took note of them. They come into the city and uh, they spend a few days just kind of praying and, and seeing how the Lord's going to lead. But no one took note of them except for one person, the enemy. The enemy took note of him. Because the enemy is already going to swing a plan of action to bring these guys down. Because the enemy knows well that wherever Paul put his foot, revolution was about to happen. And he knew as Paul stepped into that city that his banner that had long lived and flown over that city was slowly being brought down and the banner of Jesus Christ would be raised in that place. And so he was freaked out. And the enemy took note of him. The enemy took note of him. And so uh, on the Sabbath day, they try and find where the Jewish people meet. That's how Paul would start things out. He'd go into the synagogue. Well, there was no synagogue in Philippi, which meant there was a small Jewish population there. It only took 10 Jewish men to make a synagogue and to have a synagogue put together. And so uh, he 
you know, finds where they meet because they would meet. And, and a lot of time what they would do is they would meet uh, by a river. And so it says uh, in chapter 16 that they were outside of Philippi by the river and they would meet. A lot of times the Jewish people would meet by a river so they could do the ritual washing before they worshiped and before they uh, prayed and, and praised the Lord. Uh, it gives some insight to Psalm 137.1 that says, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. And so here the ex exiles in Babylon, having no synagogue or place to worship God, they would then go to the rivers of Babylon. They would weep and remember Zion. And so Paul finds a group of ladies, a group of women praying and in this place. And uh, Paul meets a woman by the name of Lydia and uh, has a conversation with her. It says that he spoke to her. The word there means a private conversation. So he talks with her and uh, she ends up getting converted. One of the awesome things about Lydia is that uh, she was a seller of purple and she was uh, uh, from a place called Thyatira, uh, which is in Asia. Uh, Paul couldn't go to Asia to minister, so God brought someone from Asia to him, and it's his first recorded convert. And she was a pillar in the church, as she took the apostles as in, and as she housed them, and as she would be a pillar in, uh, in supporting that new work there. It says that all our house was baptized, everybody got saved, and so the Lord begins an incredible work there. Notice with me, though, in verse 16, the enemy attacks it says, now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with the spirit of divination met us who brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. And so uh, here was a, uh, a demonized um, uh, little girl and uh, she was used by these men to, uh, uh, you know, tell these fortunes and they were, they were very, they got very wealthy off of it. This girl followed Paul and us. And it's interesting because she cried out saying, these men are the servants of the most high God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. So here's this demonized girl and she begins everywhere Paul goes to cry out that these men proclaim the way of salvation. These men are appointed from the most high God. And this she did for many days. But Paul greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas. And so it's interesting because, uh, you know, here's this girl and, uh, you know, she's got a demon in her, but the demon's proclaiming the truth. It's kind of a weird situation. And so Paul endures it for a couple of days, but finally it says that he was grieved within him. He was vexed. And so that he turned and he cast the demon out in Jesus' name. God will not have the testimony of truth spoken by those who are not true. For behind the method is a motive, and the motive is not that of helpfulness, but that of destruction. The danger with her speaking the truth in that way was to then give credibility to what she would say after. And so... As the enemy works, sometimes he'll speak truth just so that we bite it so that he can twist it. So that he can then twist it into such a way that it's a destructive air that wipes out and obliterates people. G. Campbell Morgan said of this passage, the hour of greatest peril for the gospel in Philippi was not the hour when they put Paul in prison. It was the hour when the damsel with the spirit of divination told the truth told the truth, told the truth. 
She couldn't be allowed to establish any credibility. She had to be put down because then she would come in and she would spoil the real truth. And so remember that God will not have a testimony of truth spoken by those who are not true. Who are not true. And so, uh, and so Paul turns and he uh, casts the spirit out. Now the reaction of the people as we see in verse 19. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone. So here he had taken their jobs away. In a moment, in an instant. There was no care for the little girl. There was no happiness that she had been delivered from this torturous way of living. But all they could think about is that now our jobs are gone, our money is gone. It says, they seized Paul and Silas, they dragged them to the marketplace to the authorities, and they brought them to the magistrates and said, these men being Jews exceedingly trouble our city, and they teach customs which are not lawful for us being Romans to receive or to observe and so you have this group of guys and they're upset and it cre they create this mob, you know, kind of a thing. They drag them to the center where all the uh, things, uh, justice was done and handed out. And so they say, uh, there's no mention of, hey, we're sad because we lost our money. But now they make up this and they say these guys are making disturbances. Uh, these guys, uh, you know, are teaching things that isn't lawful for us. Uh, you know, uh, you got to deal with them. They're, they're, they're turning... Uh, uh, things uh, upside down, and uh, everywhere Paul went, he was always creating disturbances. Everywhere he went, he was creating disturbances. He went here, Rah! he went over here, ah! and everywhere he went, he was creating disturbances. In John 3, it says, this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. And Paul and Silas were a light. And wherever they went and wherever Paul went, he was a light. He was going to speak the truth. He was going to preach the gospel. There was no compromise. He was a light. And so for some people, they loved him. Why? Because he provided the way of salvation. He taught them the gospel. They accepted Jesus into their hearts. They were set free for all of eternity and joy, the joy of transformation, the joy of being different, the joy of going to heaven would well up in them. And people loved him. But on the other hand, because he was a light, uh, people hated him because he exposed the darkness. He exposed that which was evil. He didn't compromise in it. In just one chapter in Acts 17, it said of Paul and his group and early Christianity, but when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brethren uh, to the rulers of the city, crying out, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Uh, how is that? These who have turned the world upside down. These who have turned the world upside down. Not a huge group yet, but full of the Holy Spirit and yielded to the Holy Spirit. God used this group to turn the known world upside down on top of itself. I love it. I love it. You see, not all disturbances are bad, church. Not all disturbances are bad. How about smoke alarms? You know, they did a recent survey and it was over 50% of the homes where, uh, you know, the fire department went into, there's no batteries in the smoke alarm. 
why they create disturbances, don't they? And, uh, you know, uh, we, take the, we take the batteries out. They're starting to get low, and we think, ah, there's never going to be a fire. But man, do it, does it come in handy when the smoke is billowing and the flames are licking the walls of the house and that alarm sounds, you're deep in sleep and wakes you up and says, get up, there's danger. And that's a disturbance that's good, and that's a disturbance the church needs to be to this sleeping world, to this sleeping country, to this sleeping coastland. Get up. There's danger. There's danger. There's danger. Some disturbances are good. I think making somebody feel awkward isn't half bad when you walk away as they're telling a dirty joke because you don't want the Holy Spirit inside you to have to hear such a thing. I think there's some disturbances that are good as gossip is being spoken about somebody. As you walk away or you ask them to stop, I think making that person feel uncomfortable can be a good thing. You want your doctors to tell you the truth. You don't want them just to butter you up and just to give you, you know, I mean, how would it be to go to the doctor and him saying, everything's great, you've never been healthier, but you know, you should probably do your will in the next three weeks. There's things that disturb us that are good. Church, it's been said, and it's been said right, they should either love us or hate us, but they should never ignore us. should never ignore us, church. We're in the world, but not of the world. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the glorious gospel on our lips. Feet shod with that glorious gospel wherever we go. Oh, they shouldn't ignore us. Oh, they should see Jesus Christ and it should either make, a, make them want it or it should make them despise it. But we shouldn't be undercover and we shouldn't be secretive. We should never blend, ever. I remember the first time I read the word alien in the Bible and I was like, whoa, it talks about aliens in the Bible. I was a kid. You know, later I would learn that what that meant is somebody whose citizenship wasn't of this country. And in regards to us, it said that we are aliens in this world in the sense that our citizenship is not here. Our citizenship is in heaven. And glory to glory is that it's in heaven. We are pilgrims passing through. We are not here to live here, to put our roots down. But we, you know, what? We lay up our treasure in heaven. That's where we're going, that's where we'll be. And we have to be careful that we don't look like the world around us. God has given us his spirit to make us like himself and to make us different, to make us different. And so here they are and, and uh, in verse 22, it says, then the multitude rose up together against them and the magistrates tore off their clothes. And here they are in the center of the town. Their clothes are torn off and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And the magistrates would have assistants called lictors, and they would carry around rods on their back. And uh, much in the same way a police officer would carry a gun on his hip. It was that, that's basically what they were. And so they took their rods and they beat these men. And they beat them and they beat their backs until their backs were bruised and bloody. Oh, they just wailed on them. And so in verse 23, it says, And they laid many stripes on them and threw them in prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. 
Having received such a charge, the jailer, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. And so as he received this, he took these men, they'd just been beaten, blood dripping off their back, and he takes them and he puts them down in the worst part of the prison. He puts them in the inner part, the dungeon, the darkest, the dankest, the most horrible. Not only that, but he puts their feet in stocks, which was another form of torture. It would, uh, you know, uh, put your feet in uncomfortable positions. You could never get comfortable, and sometimes they would put it up, and your feet would go into the stocks. They would have to lay on their back that had just been beaten mercilessly. And so there was no comfort for these men. But we look, and we see the songs in the night. As we look at verse 25 and 26, we are at first amazed by the cheerfulness and the heroic of these men. Then we see that their singing wasn't abnormal in the situation, but was normal, because we see who they were singing to. It was not the result of fluctuating emotions. It was the expression of a constant experience of the soul. So these men we see weren't just, you know, okay, what do we do here? But it was simply they were living out that which they had been living all along. So here are these men who have been beaten with rods, backs bloody and bruised, put into the inner prison and whose feet are put into the stocks. The crazy thing is that it wasn't that they were in disobedience. They weren't doing something wrong. In fact, they were doing the greatest right. They were preaching the gospel. They were saving people and setting them free from all of eternity. And this is what happens to them. They're thrown in prison. They're thrown in prison. Oh, the injustice, we say. How could that? I was doing what was right. How can this happen? But I ask you this morning to put yourself in that situation. What would your reaction be? if you'd just been beat up to a bloody pulp and put in a dark prison for doing what was right. So you take yourself and you go back 2,000 years. And here you're on the street evangelizing and you're handing out the four spiritual laws. And they grab you and they strip the shirt off your back and just beat you. And you can hardly move. And yet they drag you down into the prison and they put you in this uncomfortable place where the pain would only increase even more. What would your reaction be to that? So you think about it. You put yourself in that place, the smells of the dungeon, the blackness of it. What would our reaction be? Now, truly, there is a pain that we bring on ourselves that we have to take responsibility for at times in our lives. I remember in junior high, a friend of mine who told me one Sunday that he really wanted a broken arm. Uh, we all do crazy things for attention and this was his cry. He wanted a cast, and he wanted people to sign his cast, and he thought that would be cool and kind of show some, show some toughness, you know? I kid you not, the very next Sunday, he comes into church with a cast on his arm. And then I found out this story. He took his bike, and he rode it as fast as he could into a telephone pole. And he broke his arm, just snapped it. The sad thing was nobody rode on his cast, But I wrote, I wrote real big. I wrote like Psalm 119 on it. and He was good. But there is a pain that we can bring on ourselves. And uh, we have to take responsibility for that. But there is a lot of pain in this world that just happens because it's life. There's a lot of pain in this world because there's evil people in the world. In fact, I, I would suggest there's a lot of pain in this room. You know who we are 
You know our background. You know what we've been through. You know, you know yourself. You think about this aspect and who did this and why this. And there's a lot of pain that we don't bring on ourselves. Other people put on us or circumstances or life put it there. But I ask you, if you were in this story, if you find yourself in verse 25, would the story be the same? Would the story be the same? I think my response would be, I would curl up into a ball and suck my thumb. <laughs> ah, Silas, don't move. <gasps> I think about it. And pain can be a hard thing sometimes. I remember uh, years ago when I first was married, I was so stoked to wear my wedding ring. Uh, I just gotten married at work and I am an electrician by trade. Uh, and uh, I caught it on something and, and ripped my finger off. And, uh, and, and they had to put it back on and sew it back on. And five surgeries, you know. And it was amazing, though. I got to go to this amazing doctor. This, it's the Davies Medical Center up in San Francisco. They pioneered microsurgery. And, and, and how they got their grant was in their garage. They took two rabbits. They cut their ears off. And they switched them. And they worked in their garage. And so they got this grant. And they built this hospital where they pioneered these... This, this amazing microsurgery. And I, I, I just remember just thinking, oh, the pain. And I mean, you, it really gives you an illustration on when one part of the body suffers, the whole body suffers. But still, I was, I was oh, no, don't peel it. Oh, no more, you know, and everything. And I'm sitting in the hospital, you know, waiting. And I, I, I begin a conversation with a guy next to me. And, and I ask him what, why he's here. And, how, and he's telling me how he got his whole left side caught in like some uh, press. And it just shredded and tore him up. He lost his thumb. He's, they took his big toe and put it on where his thumb would be. I mean, they were doing crazy stuff. And, and you know, he's sitting there and he's stoked and he's telling me. And they're taking skin from all of him. He's just, you know, he's learning to walk again. He's learning how to grab things again. And, and then he asked me why I was there. <laughs> I just kind of looked down and I just... Said terminal illness. <laughs> but there is that sense that, you know, pain comes into our lives and it's not something that's pleasant. And I want you guys to know that the Apostle Paul and Silas here, they weren't guys who, who didn't feel any pain. It wasn't like, yeah, I could have gotten 40 more, you know, kind of a thing. They felt every beating, they felt every lash on their small frames. They felt it all. They felt the coldness of the prison. They felt the uncomfortable shifting of their feet and, and, and the socks. They weren't immune to the pain. And that's not the point. But we see in their response what got them through, what changed their perspective, or what kept their perspective on track. Notice in verse 25. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Now, it's important to note that praying and singing is not a description of two different exercises. They weren't offering petitions and also singing hymns of praise. There is no suggestion of petition in the word translated praying. The word covers the whole ground of worship, asking for gifts, rendering adoration, continued supplication, offering thanksgiving. 
The word praying is immediately qualified by the word singing hymns. We are not warranted in believing that these men were asking for anything at this moment. And because the two and how they go together, we know that they weren't asking God to deliver them or set them free. Or God, oh, please stop the pain. Okay, we'll sing you. Oh, Lord. But they weren't asking for anything. But what were they doing? They were singing praises of adoration to Jesus Christ. They were giving him praises. They were praising his attributes, his majesty. That he was the Lord over all. He's in control. He's sovereign. They were praising in the prison. They were praising in the prison. The worship of these men was that of adoration. They adored God. They let God know it. These were, ex these were exercises in spiritual joy. It was the expression of the gladness of their hearts. These men didn't ask for anything but gave. In the darkness of the night, their feet fastened the stalks, their backs all bloody. They offered praises. They gave, and their giving was the outcome of their gladness. They gave because they were glad. They were joyful. And they praised Jesus because he is good. So we ask into that situation, we say, what in the world, Paul and Silas, is there to make you glad? You talk about the half, the glass half empty, man, that glass is broken. In your situation, what in the world is there to make you glad? What is there to put a smile on your face and a song in your heart? And I think, I believe with all my heart, they would respond and they'd say, what is there to make us sad? What is there to make us sad? We have Jesus by the Holy Spirit indwelling us because we're the temple of the Holy Spirit of the living God. We now, because of the sacrifice Christ made on the cross, have his righteousness put to our account so that we can boldly come before the throne where Jews could never go into the Holy of Holies except for once a year by the high priest. We now come this very moment. We enter in boldness with thanksgiving on our heart and adoration because he is good, because he is awesome, because he is in control, because he is worthy of our praise, because he is great, because he is incredible, because he's incomparable, because he did all this for us. Man, we love him. We love him. And so uh, their question would be, uh, what is there to make us sad? Now notice with me the prisoner's response to them. In verse 25, it says, now, at midnight, Paul and Silas were singing and pray, uh, praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Now, it's midnight, and, and at that, that point, everybody should be going to sleep. That's, it's late. So everybody's, you know, going to sleep, but we see them. They're not asleep. But it says the prisoners, plural, are listening to them. And that word listen there is an interesting word. It means attentive listening, that listening that brings pleasure. That listening, that brings pleasure. Like listening to good music versus bad music. I'm not a big fan of polka music. You know, kind of a thing. But when good music is played, when somebody sits at the piano or when we worship on Sunday mornings, ah. Oh. And so these men are inclining, they're straining at their chains to hear this worship come from Paul and from Silas. In a sense, the word, it, it, here's a picture of it. Remember when you were a kid and it's Christmas time and your parents just got home from shopping and they go into their bedroom and uh, they're telling each other what they got for you and you hear your name 
but the door's closed, and so you run into the kitchen, and you grab a glass, and you put it up against the wall, and you're like, oh, what is it? I, and you're listening intently, and you're trying and straining and focusing to listen to what it is, and you hear the words. It's exactly what I wanted. I didn't think in 100 years they'd get it for me. They got it for me. Whoopee! And you throw the glass in it. Breaks all over the place. But that's the kind of listening that they were doing. They're pulling, straining at their chains. They're in awe and wonder, and it's bringing pleasure to these prisoners. And you have to understand that these prisoners weren't just these guys who were, you'd stand up in a lineup. But they were, uh, some of them pretty gnarly. When the jailer goes to kill himself, you see, uh, he was, if a prisoner left, the jailer was to receive the punishment. And so in him taking his own life, in a sense he's saying, there's people here who are getting the death penalty. Uh, and, he, and he wanted to take his own life before uh, the Romans could do it to him. And so here's these gnarly people, and, uh, and they're listening to this. What an amazing witness to these prisoners. What an absolutely amazing witness. They saw the reality of Jesus in their lives. And Paul and Silas had been there for a little bit, and maybe they heard uh, by way of this or by way of that, what was going on, but now they saw a reality to it. It became real. And you can imagine as the other prisoners were beat with rods, and that was part of getting evidence in that day. They would beat you and get a confession and use it as evidence in your trial. And so all the prisoners, uh, pretty much of them probably beat. And so you can imagine as they would come into the prison and the moaning and the groaning and the all through the night. But these guys were different. They didn't moan. They didn't complain. They weren't groaning. They were praising Jesus Christ. Who are these people? What in the world? They must be alien. People, church, people watch our lives for reality of what we proclaim. Man, guys, you let them know you're a Christian. They watch. Okay, I know a little bit about that. Is it true? How is it lived out? They listen to what you say. They listen to how you talk about people. They listen, they listen, they listen. So many dealings I've had with people and they'll say, oh, it's heartbreaking. They'll hear a Christian gossip and they go, how's that different? Oh, how heartbreaking that is. How it's got to stop. The people watch us, church. The world watches us. If we carry any type of banner that says, I am a follower of Jesus Christ, they watch to see if what we say is real. Are they truly transformed as they claim to be? We've got to be transformed. We've got to be real. And so the prisoners in the world, man, they listen. They lean in. And you never know it. It's the last one you expect but they're processing and taking it all in. Church, we can either be a thermometer in this world or a thermostat. Thermometers, circumstances, and situations are a thermostat. What do I mean by that? A thermometer, uh, it, what does it do? It tells the temperature of the room it's in. It changes with the environment that it's been put in. And so if the, the environment's cold, it's cold. If the environment's hot, it's hot. Wherever it is, it changes and adapts uh, to whatever environment, whatever circumstance it finds itself in. But a thermostat is different because a thermostat changes the environment to itself. 
And so the Lord has for us not to be swayed by circumstances, not to be conformed to this world, back and forth, up and down, but that we set the standard, that we uh, are conformed by Jesus Christ, and that that standard is set in our lives, and that everything is conformed to that standard. People, look, church. Now notice the way to joy. In Romans 8, 28, Paul would write, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. In Romans 5, 3 to 5, he says, and not uh, only this, but we also exult in our tribulations. Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance, proven character and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And then also in Romans 8, 35 to 39, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sakes we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered, but in all these things we are overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Absolutely praise the Lord. So Paul... So Paul would write these things. He'd say, I know that it's going to work together for good because we've been called of God, because we love God and God loves us. He takes everything and he works it for good. He takes these things and makes it beautiful. There's a saying, I don't know if you've heard it, but it says, what can't be cured must be endured. I don't know if you've heard that in your life and it's, well, it's an okay statement, but it's not Christian. Because Christianity says these things must be endured because they are part of the cure. These things have to be endured because they're part of the cure. Christianity is never the sour pessimism that submits, but the joyful optimism which cooperates with the process. Do you guys get that? It's never that uh, sour pessimism that submits, oh, this, okay, oh, but it's the joyful optimism that goes with the process that embraces, that says, Lord, I don't understand it. I don't understand why things are hard. I don't understand why things are difficult. I don't understand why you just don't come down right now and do something. But I cooperate with you because I know you are good and I know you love me and I know you sent your son to die in my place. Jesus himself said, truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice and you will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. And notice it's not exchanged for joy, but it's turned into joy. Guys, that's the process. That's the process. These men were not callous and indifferent. They were in pain, but that was not the focus. Their focus was on the greatness of their God that he was in control, that he loved them, so they loved him back. Now, in the early 70s when my dad first got saved, and he was taking a walk one night on the beach. And as he was walking on the beach, uh, he saw something, and it, the, the moon's full, it's beautiful. He saw something glimmering in the distance, and he couldn't figure out what it was, so he had to go over there and walk to it. And as he looked down, it was a Coke bottle, an empty Coke bottle sitting in the sand. 
And he said he felt the Lord speak to his heart and say, Jack, I, I want you to be that Coke bottle. <laughs> what? <gasps> this is about my eyesight. As my dad thought on that a couple weeks, he understood what the Lord meant. Here's this glass thing that's empty, sitting amidst all this sand, reflecting the pure light all around. How is glass made? By heating sand up really hot until it's pure, until it's transparent, until it's see-through. And so the Lord was speaking and saying, I want to heat you up a little bit, but it's not to hurt you. It's to make you beautiful. I want to empty you, not to leave you empty, but to fill you with my light. So the Lord would say to us in that process, in those trials and those tribulations, he'd say, it's about the process. Go through it. Go through it. Go through it. Some lessons for our lives. The first lesson I see in this text is we can't buy our way out of difficulty. We can't buy our way out of difficulty. Never in the history of the world do we live in a time where we can buy ourselves out of comfortable circumstances. Never before. Oh, I don't like this job. Get a different one. It's too hard. My marriage is too hard. I'll just leave. The school, it's, it's too difficult. There's, too, there's people against me. I'll just, just go to a different school. And we uh, can't pay this. Just put it on credit. We have to be careful that we never buy our way out of difficult circumstances. Paul and Silas, you have to understand how to get out of jail free card. That they could have sprung any time. They were Roman citizens. And it was against the law to beat Roman citizens and put them in prison before a trial. And it is fascinating to me that Paul and Silas, as they grab the rods, they go, hey, wait, we're Roman citizens. Or is their feet are put into these stocks. They're like taken to the dark place. They don't say, hey, we're Roman citizens. But at some point in the night, it's just too much and it's overwhelming. They say, get the jailer. Hey, we're Roman citizens. But they wait. And they wait and they submit to the Lord for a more opportune time. And God uses it for such a tremendous glory in the early church in Philippi. Why? Because the church, as was seen, Philippi was aggressive against any teaching that was different from the worship of their Roman gods. But here, because they were Roman citizens, the magistrates heard about it. They were embarrassed. They had fear on their hearts because that, oh, this might get back to Rome. We'll be removed of our position. We can't let that happen. They go personally. They apologize. They ask Paul to leave the city. But they set a precedence. With that always over their head, there wasn't that persecution. There wasn't that uh, 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 animosity against the early church. And the early church could grow and establish in a peaceful place because Paul and Silas endured the beating. They endured the prison. God used it for his glory. Absolutely amazing. And Paul would later go back there with no problems. You guys, we have to be careful about getting out of difficulty because the very difficulty may be God-ordained so when you endure, you may shine like the stars. Who knows that if what you're going through in this situation, whatever family crisis it might be, that your workers might see you shine like the stars. Maybe it's a son or a daughter that's walked away from the world that's a prodigal. And maybe something, some ailment has befallen you. Maybe God has brought that to see that your faith is true and real and that the world is sick and empty and weak. It may be that the very circumstances we try to run away from are the very circumstances God will get the glory for. 
Oh, how we have to be careful, church. How we hate pain and how we hate discomfort, but how God produces tremendous things through it. How he turns sorrow into joy. You think of the boys in the furnace, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. All they had to do was bow their knee. Here's this false idol, who would know it? Everybody else was doing it, but they didn't do it. They said no. They didn't think they were going to get saved in the furnace. They had no idea, but God saved them in the furnace. And because of their obedience, because they did what was difficult, in a moment in time, the whole nation saw who the true God was. And how stupid that false idol set up to Nebuchadnezzar became. It became a sight of mockery that he had eventually take it down. Praise the Lord that he'll do that in our lives. You guys, the great lesson of this passage, I believe, is this. And I want you guys to walk away with this. The great lesson is this. Men who sing in prison are men who can't be imprisoned. Men who sing in prison are men who can't be imprisoned. People who sing in prison are people who can't be in prison. Why? Because they're in the presence of God. And, and you're, you're in the presence of God. What? doesn't matter where the body is. In Psalm 1611, it says, You will make known to me the path of life, and your presence is fullness of joy, and your right hand are pleasures forevermore. As we sing, or will sing, better is one day in the courts of the Lord than are a, a thousand elsewhere. And so, the great truth is that people who sing in their circumstances and praise Jesus despite their circumstances is that you can't be imprisoned by those circumstances. Church, perhaps you're about at that point of midnight in your life. Circumstances sing, seem against you. And you don't know what to do. You're at the end of your rope as it is. And you think, I've prayed and I've prayed and I've prayed. May I suggest to you that you praise that you praise. God gives songs in the night. In Job 35, 10, it says, but no one says, where is God my maker who gives songs in the night? And in Psalm 42, 8, the Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime. His song will be with me in the night, a prayer to the God of my life. Church, no matter the circumstances, praise Jesus, worship at his feet, adore him who is altogether lovely for he is incomparable and there is none like him. And there is so much to praise him for. And as you praise him, guess what happens? Your circumstances die. Yes, it might still be painful and the pain doesn't go away. But oh, it's small in light of his glory and grace. Praise, church. Praise. Madame uh, Guyon wrote in prison and spent 10 years of her life in prison. Was treated harshly. But she wrote this song. She said, a little bird I am, shut from the fields of air, and in my cage I sit and sing to him who placed me there. Well pleased a prisoner to be, because my God it pleaseth thee. Not have I else to do, I sing the whole day long. And he who most I love to please, doth listen to my song. He caught me and bound my wandering wing, but still he bends to hear me sing. My cage confines me round, but though my wing is closely bound, my prison walls cannot control the flight, the freedom of the soul. 
Oh, it is good to soar these bolts and bars above to him whose purpose I adore, whose providence I love. Mm. You think of John Bunyan who wrote that incredible book, Pilgrim's Progress, in prison, those visions given to him. I think of Horatio Spafford, and some of you have heard this story. He was an assistant to D.L. Moody, and, uh, and, and he had, you know, um, real estate in, uh, in Chicago, and it was with D.L. Moody as he was working. And uh, he was financially secure. He had three daughters and a wife, and uh, uh, something happened. And uh, the big Chicago fire hit, and he lost all his property. He went from having a lot to having nothing. And then soon a son was born to him, but that son would die. So man, just hit with thing after thing after thing. He got a message deal. Moody was over in Europe and he was, uh, the Lord was blessing him. He sent a request uh, to Horatio to, to join him. And, uh, and so uh, Horatio decided to stay back and to finish things up and, and settle things and they were going to go over. So he sent his family on ahead, his wife and three daughters. And uh, tragedy upon tragedy, the boat sank. And, uh, and he got a telegram from London, uh, two words, saved alone. And as he knew, his wife was saved, but his daughters had perished in the sea. So he, on his way over to meet her, uh, the captain pointed out where the other ship had gone down, and he goes out and he looks over the banister and the railing, and with all this in his heart, what is this man to do? What is this man to say? And at that point in his life, he pins this famous song when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like a sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, lest the blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate, he hath shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. He praised the Lord and his circumstances didn't imprison him. Also note that we're almost done. People who sing when the work is stopped are people whose work is never stopped. You notice the prisoners as they listened intense, intently. You, you guys, surely some of them came to Christ as they saw this powerful work and move of the Lord. But most importantly, I think, is this jailer, the jailer who had put them in the stocks, who had showed them no mercy. The earthquake happens and he runs and he's in such despair that he's going to take his own life. And Paul calls out from the darkness and says, don't take your own life, we're all here. Don't take your life. And he runs and he falls at their feet and says, men and brethren, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And the amazing thing in this story is who the prisoner really is. It's not Paul and it's not Silas, but it's this jailer. He had the keys to the cells, but he was the one bound. He had, could unloosen and shackle, but he was the one shackled. Because you see the hopelessness of his state, the emptiness of his condition. And if you don't know Jesus and you're here today, you may hold the keys of freedom in your hand that you think are ways that will give you joy and pleasure and happiness. But what you don't know is that you are the prisoner here this morning. And God has come to set you free. Because 
whatever weekend, when whatever what wears off, there's an emptiness that grows every day in your soul. And God wants to fill it with him. I think of Amy Carmichael who said to the Lord, and he called, she was a missionary to India, and, and she called her kids, uh, her people, the little darlings, and she never came back. But one day she was praying, and she said, God, if there's a way I can be more useful to my little darlings, make it happen. And as she got done praying, she stepped into a building, and they had just dug a ditch, and she fell into that ditch. She broke her foot, she broke her leg, and she twisted her spine, and she would be bedridden for the next 20 years of her life. But from that bed, it wasn't the, the prison of circumstances that bound her. But she wrote the most beautiful praises and hymns and poetry and books and has encouraged generation after generation. You see, the jailer, as he was transformed, at first he didn't wash their wounds, but now we see him as they teach the people the word in his house and all his house is saved and baptized. And then the jailer takes totally transformed and washes Paul and Silas's wounds. So gruff at one hand, but now so gentle as he cleans their wounds. Perhaps you're in the, air, the time of preparation. You've said, Lord, here I am, send me. I will go for you. I will speak for you. But there seems to be silence. You guys, praise Jesus because he is working. His work goes on. Don't think that because you're not doing something that you can see, he's not doing something. He's always working. You guys, fourthly, they praised God because they knew him. They kept praising because in knowing him, they wanted more of him. And that is the key. They wanted more of God, and so they kept praising. And in praising, they simply wanted more of God. You see, intimacy with Jesus Christ expands our capacity and our desire to have more of him. It's like a balloon, as an illustration I heard. You put a balloon to your lips, which is an intimate thing, and you blow into that, and that which was small expands into that which is big and contains far more than you ever thought it could. And so as we come to Jesus, we don't just take a pill and one day wake up, and we're here we are, we're ready to be these super Christians, but we dive in, we commune, we devote, we spend time at the feet of Christ, we pray. And as we spend intimacy with him, we only want more of him. As the psalmist cried out, as the deer pants for water, so my soul panteth after thee. So my soul pants after thee. And the more you spend with Jesus, the more you get around him, the things of him, the more you want of him. And that's how it works and that's how it goes. The more you praise him, the more you want to praise him. The more that you think the songs are running out, the more songs he gives. Oh, how he expands that capacity for him. And that's the key. They praised God because they knew him. They kept praising because in knowing him, they wanted more of him. Do you know the Lord that way? Have you let that area of your life slip? Do you just come to church day in and day out? We can only live a life a true lifestyle of praise if out of love and through intimacy we spend time with the one we praise. In verse 26, there's an earthquake, but I mentioned the earthquake because the earthquake isn't necessarily that important. It was neat, but Paul and Silas did not praise Jesus in the prison for an earthquake. The earthquake happened, they weren't expecting it. How do we know that they didn't just praise Jesus to get some sort of deliverance in their life? Because 11 years later, Paul would be in prison again. And he would be chained to the Roman guards. And he would pen one of the most beautiful letters, the letter to the Philippians. And he would send it to their way. 
And it wasn't a letter of complaining. It wasn't a letter of sorrow. It wasn't a letter that was overwhelmed by circumstances. But the great theme of the book of Philippians is the theme of joy. The theme of joy. The theme of joy. And Paul didn't see another earthquake, but he kept praising. Guys, here we go, and this is it. They sang not to get out, but to get in. They sang not to get out, but to get in. Which direction are you facing today? Do you come to church to ask God to help you and to get you out? Or do you come to church because you want more of him? Do you do your devotion because it's the thing to do? Or do you do your devotion because you can't wait to meet with Jesus? They didn't sing to get out. They sang to get in. Which direction are we facing the piano can be a lot of things. I've seen it used for holding books, for stacking pictures. Somebody's changed light bulbs with it. But a piano was made for one thing. It was made to pray. It was made to play. And when a master sits down at a piano and plays it, it's doing what it was created for. And so when we praise Jesus Christ with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, we do what we were created for. There's something interesting in the word praise. It's a little different from the word thanksgiving. Most of the time they're synonymous, but Thanksgiving has with it the idea of remembering back to all that God has done and being thankful for it. Praise goes further and says, it's not about me, it's about you. It's all about you. It's all about you. And praise becomes that to us. It's worshiping who he is. It's worshiping his perfections. Close with this story. There's a man who our old story about a, uh, a church that was having an auction in the basement. This church was done, and so they were auctioning the things off, and a lot of people were there to get their hands on things, and they're down in the basement, and the auctioneer's going, and things are going at a pretty good pace, but he picks up this violin at one point uh, that had been used in the church, and, and everybody kind of looked at it and, and kind of laughed because it was, it was gone. I mean, it, just, it was faded. It was scratched. It was dented. It, it looked worthless. And so he started the bidding, $5, nobody bid, $2, nobody bid, $1, nobody bid. And almost out of indignation, somebody from the back row, an older gentleman, sco uh, scooted his seat back and it scraped against that wooden floor and everybody turned around to look at him. And he slowly made his way up and he looked into the eyes of the auctioneer. He grabbed the violin from him and he took it in his hands and he began to play the most beautiful music. And people's jaws hit the floor. And it was so beautiful as he handed it back the auctioneer took it with a gleam in his eye and he said $5 and somebody said $10, $20, $200, $2,000, $5,000. And guys, we may be damaged by circumstances, we may be scratched and we may be faded, but when we yield ourselves to the master's hands, he will take those and make the most beautiful music and everybody around will listen with their jaws on the ground and they'll say, who are these people who turn this world upside down? We're going to praise Jesus now. So let's praise him. Let's praise him this morning, but let's praise him when we go home. Let's praise him in the car. Let's praise him when we get up. If God wakes you up in the middle of the night tonight, praise him. Let's praise him. Let's be a people of praise. We have a lot to praise Jesus for. So let's praise him today, tomorrow, and the rest of our lives until we go into glory, and that's all we do. Jesus, thank you for your word this morning. Bless this people, Lord. Please, God, make us a people of praise. We love you, Jesus, more than we can say in your name. Amen.